Hello and welcome to Adventures in Venueland, an EAMC podcast. This is your all-access pass to go backstage and behind the scenes with some of the brightest minds that cross the scope of the live entertainment industry. I'm Dave Rettelberger. And I'm Paul Hooper. We'll introduce you to some of our favorite people as we dive deep into the world of live touring shows and the venues that host them. Today's adventure takes us out to State College, Pennsylvania, and Kate Bean, who is their Director of Marketing and Public Relations at the Bryce Jordan Center. Kate, great to have you here today. Thanks for having me, Paul and Dave. Hey. So, so Kate, you know, let me let me ask you right off the bat, because you and I share a, a very similar challenge over the years, and that is the kind of prejudice that exists out there for an arena that is, uh, happens to be on the campus of a university. So what has that challenge been like for you over the years? Well, I think the assumption is that because we're part of such a large university, we are owned by Penn State, that we have this built-in market for shows that will sell out every event that comes to us and we don't really have to think outside of the student demographic, which as you know, working with Ohio State is just not true. We really have to serve the entire market of our area, which being in central Pennsylvania, most people don't know where we are. I try to joke. You just literally stick your finger in the middle of the state and kind of swirl it around. That's where we are. And that's the market that we attract. It's very broad and really has to go beyond that student demographic. You're, you're dead on and people thinking, oh, yeah, so the college kids will all buy the tickets. College kids don't have a lot of discretionary dollars for the most part, and they do. They're spending it on pizza. But there's still a, you know, there are some of those for that will come out for their favorite artists. And there's obviously a good chunk of the community uh, that comes out. So talk to me a little bit about, for somebody who's never been, what the arena's place there is in the community and, and a little bit of the history of the Bryce Jordan. So we are celebrating our 25th year during a pandemic. Isn't that fun? (laughs) Um, But we were built in 1996 and launched with uh, Rusted Root as a headliner and uh, basically have been going ever since. We fulfilled the main uh, space for entertainment in Pennsylvania between Philadelphia and Pittsburgh since 1996. We're a 16,000-seat arena. We host both men's and women's Division I basketball for Penn State, as well as Division I wrestling uh, meets in our building. And we host everything as if we were a major market. We are a great place for tours to rehearse and begin and kick off their tours, as well as a closing, as we're so close to New York City and the other eastern seaboard cities that we can make it very attractive to come perform in our area and have another tour stop here. One interesting thing that I think you and I have always been able to commiserate on, and Dave sort of mentioned this with being in a college town, but there is this advantage sometimes, and sometimes it is a big disadvantage of that college association, because sometimes people, when they're routing tours, they consider it a college market. And sometimes that's a good thing, because you can get these tours that maybe are really wanting to key in on college markets. And other times, and I specifically am thinking of one, which you can also probably remember with a certain Irish band, that uh, we (laughs) were on the tour, and we almost announced it 
I think maybe five or six times. I mean, it literally got so close, pushed six months, got so close again, pushed a week, got so close again. And then finally in the literal 11th hour, I think it was the morning of we were going to announce, they decided to cut all the quote college markets. And then it, you know, excluded both of ours. And we were like, ah, are you kidding me? So is that something that you think is maybe more of an advantage or more of a disadvantage or does it all kind of level out in the end? I think it can be both. I think, like you said, I mean, that was one of my bucket list bands. So I've been crossing my fingers for years for that to happen. And that just constant ebb and flow of will it happen? Will it won't? Is it not going to happen? Was just mentally. Right. Oh, yeah. Um, but yeah, like you on that morning of finding out that the dates were all cut and nope, for the fourth or fifth time, we weren't going out with it and it wasn't happening. Uh, and because, like you said, we were cut because we were a university stop. I find, and this isn't always easy to do, especially in the current state of things, that bringing agents and promoters to our area, or at least giving them kind of an idea visually what it looks like and how it feels as far as demographic is important. We're not in a major metropolitan area, but we draw from them. Uh, and routing and how that tour is actually going through our state and around and surrounding states can be really important as to how we are going to attract people to come through here. We're very convenient, like I said, in regards to traveling anywhere on the eastern seaboard, but if we're competing with other Pennsylvania dates, we have to make sure that we're strategic in how that routing is done. When we do bring them in-house and bring them to see what we're working with and show them our venue, it, it can be kind of funny and a little a little uh, tongue-in-cheek at first because when you fly into State College, yes, we have an airport, so you don't have to worry about that. Uh, <laughs> but all you see are fields and cattle and corn. And if you're lucky enough to come in on a football weekend, porta potties, as far as the eye can see. Uh, and trying <laughs> to explain that to someone who's never been outside of metropolitan areas is a little challenging. But once they see it, and once they understand that the recommendations we're making for marketing are based on exactly this, we're not crazy. We're not telling you to do things because we think that we know more than you in regards to marketing. We're telling you we know our market and we know yeah. how to reach the people because this is what we're working with. Yeah, and I think sometimes those college markets get lumped in together, but they're really so different, you know, market to market. Sometimes the buildings are on campus, sometimes they're off. Sometimes it's in a small city, but it pulls from a huge market. And other times, you know, some of like the SEC schools that are down south, like they do have a really tiny city and they've got like a 7,000 seat arena. Well, that's really different than 16,000 seats and a huge area that you're pulling from, but they're both quote college markets. So it is really interesting to kind of, I don't know, enjoy the benefits of it sometimes because sometimes it'll sneak you in and land you a show and other times the frustrations because people just assume you're this tiny college building. Hey, you talked about, you know, being out there in a field. And, and one of the things that I remember, a story I remember you sharing with me uh, is, you know, when Paul McCartney, when Sir Paul McCartney comes to town, you know, they like to have giant signs around downtown and, and giant digital billboards. But you guys faced kind of a unique challenge and had a unique way of challenging because, Paul, even when he sells out, if you've never had a Paul McCartney show uh, at your arena, he doesn't just want to sell out the arena. He wants the whole town to be excited that he's there. He wants everyone in the city to know what they're missing out on. And, it is, and it's a very cool strategy. But you guys handled this in a, in a very unique way and, and had, had some slight challenges too, right? Yeah. Uh, again, if you've worked on a Paul McCartney tour, you know that they want to take up every physical space 
from his arrival point to the arena so that as he and his limo and team drive by that they can see that the town is truly taken over by Paul McCartney. And for us, as I mentioned, we have an airport, which is great, but the trip from the airport to the arena is through the countryside. Uh, we are on the outside of campus. We're on campus, but we're on the edge of it. So the first thing you see is Beaver Stadium, which is our football stadium, which is enormous. And then behind that is us. So that trip, in order to greet him coming right off of the plane, we ended up renting bucket trucks and having them hoist large, I mean, that one was probably 100 feet light by eight feet uh, between two bucket trucks for his exit from the plane. And then we bought up every possible space between the airport and the venue, as well as organize as many did the crowd to be waiting for arrival and orchestrate that route with police and make sure that that the route is known and, and it's going well. And we even took a Hollywood style sign approach outside of the building and did yard signs in order to increase some of that real estate since there wasn't much to work with. We had Beaver Stadium's digital scoreboards lit up, which we don't get to do very often. It's a, a very luxury item for us to be able to get that. So the, the route was planned and everything was exciting and the media were waiting and the screaming crowds were waiting and camera ready and the next thing you know I see these police lights go by on a different road and uh, a <laughs> moment, moment of panic that, that moment where your heart just jumps out of your chest right yeah I from what I've heard and and I have not confirmed this directly but from what I've heard the officer who was driving the lead car panicked and was so excited that he was leading the Paul McCartney entourage that he went the way he knew and just abandoned ship for all else and got him to the building so <laughs> he did manage to see the majority of our signage but our, our crowds were rushing around the building in order to try to greet him oh my gosh. <laughs> which i'm sure created quite the the spectacle for them <laughs> you know moving uh and, and unexpected changes obviously something that you've got a lot of experience with with that story but also I, i'm curious you mentioned this being the 25th anniversary of bryce jordan did you guys do something big for the 20th did you have something big planned for the for the 25th that you know didn't get to happen or how did this kind of happen through the pandemic for you guys we had been planning for the 25th anniversary for the last two years between uh, scheduling events and working with tours, we really were trying to hit every genre as well as get a men's and women's basketball team game in, potentially if there could have been a wrestling dual meet as well, but really having a full week just jam packed with events. And we were very close to that and having that come to fruition when of course March 2020 happened and all of those plans went out the window. We've since been working to really capitalize on what we can one thing that we did with Paul McCartney, actually, that we're going to do again in a much larger scale is we created a, an ice cream for Paul McCartney called Paul Macadamia Nut, which is also slightly ironic since he's vegan. But uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> but the, the creamery at Penn State is something that people know about. Ben and Jerry's makers took courses there and, and, and have some background there. And it is something you can walk outside and literally meet the cow that produces the milk that goes into your ice cream that comes with all sourced ingredients and is produced right there and it's delicious. So spoiler alert, uh, we will be releasing a special flavor for the 25th anniversary. It's called BJC Jams. <laughs> <Ooh>. Nice. 
<laughs> and it'll be a raspberry jam vanilla flavor. The production will be coming out probably at the end of July here, but we will be rolling that out to some special guests first, and then it'll be available for purchase after that. Pretty cool. It's been a project that's been in the works and on hold because we haven't had anywhere to sell it. <laughs> right. No kidding. Dave and I will have to drive up for that with empty stomachs and large spoons. Not a problem for me. <laughs> <laughs> but we've had to push a lot of other events. So at this point, the fall of 2021 is looking really good. A lot of the events are still TBD right now. We have not announced them, but we are working with promoters, agents, as well as Penn State University and their homecoming and different opportunities for community collaboration for that 25th anniversary celebration. What will likely happen is we'll do a 25 plus one as we continue through that next year. I'm not sure anybody counted 2020 as an actual year anyway, so. <laughs> yeah, we have a lot of those discussions too of like, hey, what anniversary is this and, and what year? Yeah. We were getting ready for a 20th uh, and, a, and of course a 40th, uh, 20th here in Columbus for one of our arenas and a 40th for EAMC. Mm -hmm. uh, and so yeah. there's a lot of pivoting as to what, what anniversaries are. But I like your idea, 25 plus one. Yeah, I saw the Foo Fighters. I guess we're going to, their upcoming tour, they were going to call it the 25th, but it was going to be in 2020. So I saw they did some animated graphic where it was 25, but then a spray paint, kind of spray painted a six over the five to kind of correct it. But it is, uh, you know, a little bit of a tricky thing because usually those anniversary years, you spend more years than usual planning for them. And then yep. you're like, well, is it our, this anniversary or is it this you know, what is it? Is it this many years since we opened or what? what's the number we're going to celebrate? I think you just make it work. Everyone will understand it. <laughs> we just forget about last year. As marketers, we constantly try to figure out creative ways to term things too. And I think you just have to give up at a certain point. Like it's 2020, we were exploring, okay, 25 years in operation, but do we really want right. to count? Do we want to discount the fact that we didn't close? We still operated. We were the largest classroom when Penn State's university during the pandemic and hosted sure. regional vaccination clinics and other events and things as we were able to based on the state and government guidelines. But so we really don't want to say that because then we're negating all of those people who worked and attended things during that year, even if they weren't concerts or comedy shows or family shows. So the 25 plus one just seems like a really easy way to go that people will understand. I don't think anyone's going to look at that and go, I don't get it. Right. <laughs> no. Yeah. Sapphire empowers hundreds of clients across the country with beautiful, custom-designed, mobile, and fluid, responsive websites that include the industry's only fully integrated ticketing platform, Sapphire Ticks. Sapphire's Spark content management system makes anyone a webmaster and puts easy, instant website editing power in your hands making all online content and tickets simple to update. Plus you get unlimited help when you need it from Sapphire's best in class support team. Sapphire powers online, advance and box office sales all with amazing real-time reporting. Visit sapphire.com to learn more. So, Kate, you mentioned, obviously, you know, uh, plans changing over the year. But what about for you personally? What was the pandemic like, you know, from your end? Were you able to stay employed, stay busy? What happened uh, in March 2020 and to kind of where we are today? 
So I'm one of the lucky ones who was able to remain employed throughout the pandemic and I was not redeployed. I remained in my role. My assistant's position, there's a marketing strategy position that's now posted and available to apply for that ended up leaving in June of 2020. So I've been a full year as a department of one again. So really my role shifted a little bit into more of an internal communications position versus looking at marketing and PR for events. Though, as both of you know, that planning never stops. Working with the tours and making sure that those pieces are put together doesn't take a break simply because there aren't events. So coming up with the policies and procedures for how to have events, as well as how to communicate them internally to our staff and externally to our patrons, working with the university and how to term a lot of the, the policies and procedures for the university in general. Spent a lot of, a lot of mornings and a lot of long nights working on 100 to 200 page documents to really suss out those policies and procedures and figure out ways to easily communicate them to people. I'm back to, I guess, quote unquote, normal. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever normal is, right? Yeah. yeah. We've started announcing shows again, and we'll be coming out with two more in the next few weeks, as well as more before we hit fall. So that role that I'm hiring is going to be imperative to helping these events come to fruition. It's a, it's definitely a, a lot going on, and uh, we'll talk a little bit more about that here in a few minutes. But but let me take you back to you know uh, Kate uh, in high school. Uh, when you when you're in high school, uh, who is Kate when when you're that sophomore? You're uh, 15, 16 years old, and you're trying to decide what you want to do with your life. Who were you then? <laughs> well, I had no idea this industry existed until I was 29 or 30. So sophomore high school, Kate, definitely didn't know this world was a thing. I was a performance person. I sang opera theater and did musical theater as well as rode horseback and was a triathlete. I played volleyball, was on the swim team and the equestrian team. So I uh, was busy in high school uh, and I did all of the vocal performance challenges and competitions and ended up thinking uh, performance was where I would end up, but more of a Broadway style or classical music style performing person. I was the videographer for our senior video yearbook and I just laugh because of course I had to interview myself on video and do the, where do you see yourself in five years? BS question that we all ask <laughs> yeah, each yeah, other. Sure. When we're in our yeah. teens, when we have no idea what life is gonna look like, the naivete, when you look back on it, you're like, wow, I knew nothing. Um, <laughs> that five-year plan was, I'm gonna be touring Europe with a band, like what? <laughs> <laughs> It's never but too it's late. Cool though, right? I mean, so the music's always been in your blood. Who brought music into your life? Uh, my parents did. Uh, they're awesome with music. Some of the older stuff, I, I can remember my grandparents lived in Philadelphia, which is about a three and a half hour drive from our house. So that three and a half hours, we were just bombarded with great music to and from each, each way. And to the point where my dad had, my younger sister and I trained to be able to come in in certain parts with announcements and chorus parts and harmonizing. I mean, we were like the Von Trapp family that was drunk all the time. I don't, you know, like never on pitch and never really doing it correctly, but having a blast. Yeah. <laughs> so how did you end up from there to at, uh, studying a PR at uh, Otterbein University? Yeah, right? it was Otterbein College when I was there. Uh, and it's since graduated to becoming a university. I started as an opera theater major, equine science minor. Wow. Uh, I, bet you were, I bet you were the one person with that major and minor. Yeah. You know, the singing horse girl. It was a thing. Um, 
But <laughs> I started performing and doing auditions my freshman year. And if you've met me, I think you know that I'm a pretty social human being. And auditioning and performance lifestyle is not very social. It's in fact, very isolating. And I recognized in my first semester of auditioning that this may not be for me. I loved performing and I loved singing, but I loved people more and wanted to have a positive environment around me versus a cutthroat, very nasty environment that opera can be, uh, especially if you're successful as a younger person. <laughs> Your peers sure. don't like that. Uh, so I really struggled and looked to see what I could do. I have this performance-based drive, this thing in me that wants to go out and explain the world and be out in front of humans and give them something. What else can I do with that? And public relations really spoke to me in that way. I love the graphic design side of communications and marketing. I love the wordsmithing of PR, being able to eloquently write something in a consistent and concise manner to me is just, it's a science and it can be beautiful at the same time. It was a really easy leap for me. But I honestly thought I was going to go into teaching it. When I finished college, I went to grad school. and University of Denver? Yeah, University of Denver. It's a big change. Yeah, but I really thought that my goal was to become a professor in communications and continue to teach this thing that I had fallen so in love with. And it was, yeah, it was great. I ended up working out of necessity during grad school and never really went back to focusing on that, though I do have opportunities now at Penn State, which is full circle for me. So you graduate from, you know, with, you, with your master's, and from there is, is my timing right here that you ended up working with the, uh, the Ritz-Carlton for a little bit? I did. I did. I, I had a moment in grad school where I was outside of all the other fun stuff. I did the mortgage industry, which was before the crash. So as you can imagine, it was a great way to make money. And it was easy to learn and easy to do, but had nothing to do with what I had studied. And when the market started to crash, I left and was looking around at what was possible. And the Ritz-Carlton was looking at opening a Denver hotel, it would have been the first four-star hotel in the area. And they were looking for a marketing assistant. So I was the second hire for that building, which was a retrofit of an embassy suites. And the director of marketing and advertising and I built the team that some of them are still there actually went out a couple of summers ago and met with their new GM and their team and, and got to tour the building and see all the things that we put together. But it was a really great learning experience. They don't have to market as a luxury brand. They're yeah, so nice. well known. <laughs> Everything we did was garnering public relations. So figuring out how to track and show the return on that investment was eye-opening for me, like tracking ad dollars and really seeing, okay, how can we monetize this for leadership so that they can tell that we're really making an impact on these PR efforts that we're doing. So how do you get from Denver back to, you know, State College? <laughs> well, if you want to laugh a little bit, it's all because I got punched in the face. Um, <laughs> that, that was an unexpected answer. <laughs> Is this uh, metaphorically or? <laughs> no, literally. Um, there was a winter uh, when I think it was 2006, there was a big snowstorm in Denver and it closed down the airport. I was supposed to go home for the holidays. Uh, my home is still Pennsylvania. My family all lives here. And when I got out to the airport, they were just closing it down. I was one of the last cars to be let out. A lot of people were stranded at the airport for almost a week. I, plows were following me out. 
I got back to my apartment in downtown and tried to find some of my friends that were still in the area for the holiday and it's blizzarding outside. So no one's driving on the downtown streets in Denver. They're just basically shut down. So I put on a jacket, grabbed a hat, grabbed my wallet and headed out to go meet my friends downtown and make the best of the situation. About halfway there, somebody came up, punched me in the face and stole my money. <laughs> oh my gosh. Just a random, totally random. Completely random. Oh. And uh, it was... I was lucky. I wasn't hurt. I was, my pride was hurt. You know, yeah, I was, sure. was uh, mad that my money had been stolen, but my wallet wasn't just the cash. So it was very, I mean, it, it worked out, but I just, I was like sad that I couldn't make it home for the holidays. I was definitely upset about the way that that had happened in an area that I had felt safe prior to that moment. And I started looking for ways to make it home and see what I could do career-wise in moves in order to be closer to family and not have to ever experience something like that ever again. Yeah. <laughs> Things you don't expect to hear. No, that's the, that's the <laughs> adventures, right? But it's, sometimes it's just that, that one moment. We always talk about those little moments, the sliding door moments uh, yeah. that, that change your life, right? That just because of this, this happened and now I'm here. But before you started working at Bryce Jordan, you, you did some time in, in the banking industry? I did. I, the job that ended up moving me back was with a financial, with a local bank around here. And I had babysat for the COO when I was younger and had a connection there. And so found the job and applied for it all over the phone. I think I flew back for an interview at one point and then they ended up moving me back to Pennsylvania. And then I was there for about two years before the financial industry crashed and they eliminated their marketing department. <laughs> Fine. No need to market, right? Right. So then, obviously, your adventure, your journey, uh, for better or worse, I like to say for better, because uh, <laughs> you're you now you're out of the hotel industry, out of the banking industry, and somehow you end up uh, here. We are ten years into live events. Uh, so so how did how did that leap happen? I had been playing volleyball. I've been playing since I was very young, and there was a rec league here in town. Still is. And I have played against Bernie Punt for years. And for those that don't know Bernie Punt, he had the role I currently have for, I think, 20 plus years before he recently retired. Bernie and I were friends and, and his wife and I were friends. And I never really knew what he did. But I can recall seeing him at a brewery one day and he just asked me, he's like, what do you do? No, well, this is, I'm, I have a background in marketing and PR and and he's like, I have a job for you. Like, All right. Uh, <laughs> that sounds like Bernie. Yeah. And three months later, uh, I was hired and started working and learning from who I would consider one of the best in the industry is how to do this job. And I'm still thankful to call him my friend. I saw him a couple of weeks ago and continue to be in contact and, and see he and his wife. And it's, it's been really cool working with someone like him who has such an influence in the industry as well as just the passion for what he did and what he still does. And the creativity that is welcomed in his process was really helpful in learning how everything worked and becoming my own individual in this industry. Well, I think a lot of credit too goes to your, I think you have really a gift for networking and connecting, genuinely connecting with people. 
you mentioned that you like to be social. You kind of mentioned it uh, slightly when you were going through your history, but I think maybe more than anyone else I know in this industry, you seem to know someone in every city. And unlike those of us in this industry, that those people are usually live entertainment people for you, it's, and maybe it's because you've touched so many different, you know, things, be it banking or whatever it is. You're like, oh yeah, I know someone who owns a brewery in Denver. I know someone who yes. you know, works at a gas station in Vermont. I know someone, <laughs> and I'm like, how do you know all these people? And I think it, it's really a testament to not only your ability to network, but also just when you meet someone, it kind of, this is not, this is, I can't believe I'm comparing you to Garth Brooks, but I'm going to compare you to Garth Brooks. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, but, you know, for people who have met Garth Brooks, I think one of the things that everyone would agree with is he is very genuine when he meets you. And unlike a lot of artists that are kind of there to just shake hands and move on, because he actually connects with people, he remembers them because he actually gives a shit, you know? And so I think for you, that's kind of the impression I get is you're not just there to just be like, hey, shake a hand and hey, nice to meet you, you know, move away. You learn that person's life story. You like, I, so many times I'll go with you to a bar or I'll go, hey, whatever, we'll be at a conference or something. And then I'll be like, where were you the last 20 minutes? And you're like, oh, I was talking to the bouncer at the door, I learned all about his wife and where he went to college. And I'm like, what? You you did what? And and then you'll be like, yeah, he's going to get us in a free concert later that night. And I'm like, what are you, what? And so I think you have this, you know, I don't know if it's something that was natural or if something that you picked up from your family or friends or what it was, but you have this gift for connecting with people and actually like really giving a shit about them, you know? And And I think that I'm sure has led you to where you are in your career, but has been such a huge asset. Thank you. That's really kind of you to say. <laughs> no, I, I, I just love people and I love their stories. I can't claim this as my own. I just was listening to another podcast and they were interviewing Elizabeth Banks. They ended up talking about what makes humans human and it's our stories. And that's what sets us apart from other animals. And, and I truly believe that. And I truly think that everyone has a story to tell. And some of them you might like, some of them might be epic adventures. Some of them might be sad. Some of them might not really work with what you believe in and, and align with how you are, but everyone has a story to tell. And who, when you talk to anyone, like what are they most interested in doing? Talk about themselves. And I don't mean that in a negative way, but asking someone about their history and just getting them to open up a little bit and sometimes even more than a little bit at times is just like the best gift you can get from another human like trusting me with that information and trusting me with you yourself and who you are is something that I I really thrive on it's like my it fills up my energy tank <laughs> well Kate your energy tank has to be pretty full right now because I know there have been some big developments in your life in fact a lot of people who may know you as Kate Clark may not know you as Kate Bean. So talk to us about, about that big change. Yeah, so the pandemic had one super positive thing in it. I, I got married. Uh, Yay. <laughs> yeah, uh, my husband is from the Philadelphia area and he works at Penn State as well. And we have a, he has an eight-year-old son, so I'm now a stepmother and wife and all the terminology that changes that you have to remember when you're reintroducing yourself to people. Um, <laughs> like, I, I don't know if, if it's a, 
easy to go by Kate Clark Bean. I mean, three single syllable words just is very tricky to get off the tongue. <laughs> so yeah, it was, it was interesting. We didn't get to have our wedding because of the pandemic, but we did get to elope to uh, Acadia in Maine and kayaked out to a nice little private island called Dogfish Head Cove. Uh, the Rockefellers own it. And just with he and I, my parents and two kayak guides just exchanged our vows and rings and kayaked back, ate lobster, drank beer and called it a day. <laughs> I mean, that sounds like an amazing, uh, <laughs> an amazing way to do it. You know, maybe, maybe cheaper and a little more intimate, but I, I think that's not necessarily a bad thing. I, I wish we could have shared it with more people just because we both have such a great circle of friends that truly I feel miss that experience, but we're hoping that next year, next spring, potentially that we'll be able to actually host a party reception, whatever you want to call it, or we can get together with people and just celebrate. Wedding plus one. Yes. Sapphire empowers hundreds of clients across the country with beautiful, custom-designed, mobile, and fluid, responsive websites that include the industry's only fully integrated ticketing platform, Sapphire Ticks. Sapphire's Spark content management system makes anyone a webmaster and puts easy, instant website editing power in your hands making all online content and tickets simple to update. Plus you get unlimited help when you need it from Sapphire's best in class support team. Sapphire powers online, advanced and box office sales, all with amazing real-time reporting. Visit sapphire.com to learn more. So, so Kate, you know, obviously, uh, your your other big love of your life, which you've touched on a little bit here, is is horses, right? So, you know, that's always the cliche. Every little girl love, you know, wants a pony. But you, this has been a big part of your life, and and uh, something that that you know is a true passion for you. Yeah, uh, without diving too deep into it, because it can be exhaustively boring for people. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> the fact that you recognize that is why we love Kate. But I, I was, I can tell you when I started and why, and my poor, poor yeah, parents, uh, I was eight years old. I got, uh, this six pack of lessons from the Easter Seals telethon. My dad bid on it and won. And it just so happened that the woman that was my instructor ended up, I learned a lot from her. She had about human interaction as well as animal interaction and just caring. And she also taught at a private girls school over the summer. So I was given the opportunity after those first six lessons to kind of dive into that. So every summer I would go to this private school and ride twice a day and learn from international instructors and just have an opportunity of a lifetime to really, really engage beyond what this area was able to provide me as far as diversity and education and riding education. And that moved into, I have an equine science minor from Otterbein. And last year, well, it's been two years since I started riding again. I took a big break. Riding is a huge financial commitment and time commitment. And I simply, as I was building my career, didn't have it and was really wanting to get back into it, but really hesitant for pulling that trigger because I knew what type of the commitment would take. I started taking lessons again and fell in love with the horse that I was taking lessons on. And my now husband 
at the time, I he was constantly on his phone, and I could not figure out for the life of me why. And he was texting my instructor, who is a very attractive young blonde woman. Oh. And <laughs> <laughs> he he saw me like see it, and he said that he had a split second decision to make: Do I lie? and try to gloss over why I'm talking to her or do I just tell you because he had been planning to surprise me for my 40th birthday by making Oliver mine um, and negotiating to buy him from her. So smooth move, dude. Yeah. So he's, I spoiled it a little early, but it's so exciting to be back into it. I have, I have a lovely team that I'm a part of that I get to ride and compete again. I'm not in it for the competition. I might do two a year but it is exhilarating to get on board something that big and powerful with a brain that not only trusts you, but you have to trust it to take you safely around these forces and in just the partnership. I can't explain it. It's, I have dogs, I have a horse, I've had cats and other animals throughout and not one of them has been normal. So I'm, I just, I love my animals. They, they also <laughs> fill that energy tank, man. <laughs> you also have uh, horse-sized dogs, so yeah. <laughs> yeah, you have a big piece of land. We should say that too, right? Don't you're not you're not living in uh, uh, you know the typical little uh, marketing house that most of us have. No, we live on five and a half acres of our own uh, in the middle of nowhere. Until last summer, I did not have cell phone reception here. Uh, <laughs> so. And then behind us is about a hundred acres additional that's not ours, but we have access to as well as Penn State property and state forests surrounding us. So you can hike right off of our backyard. It's great. That's awesome. That's that's so cool. Well, hey, speaking of your passions, you know, when we started the uh, diversity inclusion initiative with uh, the Event Arena Marketing Conference, you know, you joined uh, you, right away. You put your hand up and said that it was important to you. But before that, you've you've been doing some of this. That's with Penn State for you know going back to you know a couple years uh, now. So, we talk a little bit about why that's so important to you. Sure, I started to recognize a few years ago that I. This is a word that everyone likes to use right now. It's privilege, right? What does privilege mean? And, and how does it affect me and those around me and how I approach life and my work and the way that I'm going to mentor others and help them? And I really started taking a look at the fact that my particular privilege is not only that I'm white, it's that I'm white, cisgender female, but I'm not straight. And when I have the ability to hide in public sight, like most people who are challenged with being a marginalized group don't, I really had to start taking a look at what type of stand I was willing to take publicly in flying that rainbow flag, uh, which I don't do. I've never been the type of person that flaunts that. It's not been something that I put on the end of my you know, business card. It's just... Sure. I have been what is now I'm learning is changing is the terminology, but since I was 13, I knew I was attracted to men, women, and, and a lot of things in between. To me then it was bisexual. Now I think people would consider that pansexual. Diving even further into that, encephalosexual is probably more accurate for me, whether your gender identity and sexual identity don't really matter to me. It's more so how we interact and that human connection, those sure. stories. Uh, but I started taking a look at that and and really trying to push my boundaries and my comfort level in being out, which I say, and it's so strange to say it that way, because I've been out since I was younger, 
but what straight people and those who are maybe not at this point in their journey don't understand is that coming out happens a lot of times. Like it's not just once and done. You don't just put the stamp on your forehead and it's over. Uh, especially when you're able to hide it like I am. I'm married to a man. I don't have to walk around being criticized openly because what you visually see is presented as other. However, I am. So I try to be honest about that and dove into kind of joining some action committees on campus to help others who may be in a similar situation find their way to come out in the workplace and feel supported and feel loved for who they are and not feel that internal struggle that I still feel as this privilege that I hold. Like, I don't want to hide anymore because I feel like that makes it so much harder for those who can't uh, being able to get that umbrella out and help them uh, through doing that. Uh, so it's been, it's been one of those things, like it's, it's a new territory for me, kind of navigating it in that space. But I've been glad to bring that as well to the DEI committee at, with EAMC. Uh, because for years before that, I was working with the intern and scholarship committees and heading those. And that process and, and really working with our industry's youth and our up and coming professionals, it was a huge part of it. Like being able to talk them through that part in their life when you're in your young 20s and looking for your first job or navigating the workspace and the personalities that you're encountering for the first time that was a big part of it was, okay, so let's talk about who you are, where are you fit, and what type of environment works best for you, because not every environment is going to, and that's okay, but let's try to figure out the first part, which in your 20s, you don't know who you are, you don't, I mean, you're starting to figure that out, you're starting to dive in and really, really get some of those terms and different things figured out for yourself, which continue to be fluid as you age, but I really just wanted to make sure that those people could be lifted up and supported in a way that I wasn't being dishonest with them about who I was. Well, I appreciate you being willing to, to talk about that and also being willing to you know, discuss that within, within our, our own uh, conference and our industry, because I think we, you and I have discussed one-on-one -on -one how important it is for people to feel comfortable, right? Whatever, whatever uh, your role is in this live event industry and whatever your sexual or you know, racial background or what you're very welcome here. This is, this is a group that, that where we want to see you succeed and it's not always easy, but I, I think, you know, by, by you being willing to be a part of moving forward, we're hopefully, hopefully working to make it easy for the next generation to be, you know, a little more comfortable in, the, in their shoes uh, in this industry. So I think that's important. Yeah, it's exciting. Um, it was really, really awesome to work with Nicole Kosher from HRC I mean, Paul and I were already kind of big fans of the human rights campaign as it was, and being able to speak with and be presented to by their senior vice president for diversity, equity, and inclusion for our conference was one of the greatest things in, in my career at this point. And being able to continue to take that material and educate people, not only in our industry, but outside of it that might see it and go, oh, wow, so I can not understand what you're going through, but still be able to support you and be an ally. Like it doesn't require you to understand me. It just requires you to try. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so much of that is just trying to support 
be better, ask questions when you need to, but not be afraid to kind of reach out and learn. I think that's the big thing. We should all be striving to learn more about both ourselves, our situations, any privileges we have, but then also, uh, you know, more importantly about other people that are different than us and how do we help support each other? Cause we're all just specks on this big round globe, right? Amen. Yeah, and it's just such another dynamic angle to someone's story, like who they are and how they truly are willing to share that piece of themselves with the world is is beautiful. So it's it's really cool when then that also comes into play. It's not just telling me your work history or telling me, you know, the PR glossy, shiny photo that we want the world to see of who we are. It's getting down and dirty about the struggles that are real, whether you are in a marginalized group or not. Like everyone has problems. A friend of mine calls it their pile of sausage. Like everyone in the world has a pile of sausage, no matter what time of day or where you look, someone has something going on. And it's yeah. guaranteed if the attitude comes off as they're mad at you, they're probably not. Just take a second to ask what's going on with you. What's your pile of sausage look like today? Like there's probably something there that might be able to, maybe you can give them five minutes of relief where they can talk about something that is actually happening. <laughs> sure all got a pile of sausage <laughs> literally and figuratively for some of us uh so kate you know I, again you know I, it's one of the things you mentioned it but it's one of the things i love most about uh doing this podcast with, with paul is that we've gotten to kind of get beyond that pr the the shiny resume and kind of hear people's stories and i, and I appreciate you sharing yours today before we let you go though we're going to hit you with the fast five it's five quick questions uh looking for your uh quick instant response first concert Rusted Root at the Bryce Jordan Center when they opened. That was your first concert ever? That was your first concert. Wow, that's so cool. How about your favorite concert? My favorite concert was Grace Potter and the Nocturnals played in Snowmass at Jazz Fest and pouring down rain and she didn't skip a beat. It was amazing. Your biggest pet peeve? My biggest pet peeve? People who don't tell the truth. Good one. Nicest artist you've ever met. Oh gosh, there's so many. Uh, most people would tell you Garth Brooks and he is super kind, but Billy Joel. Really? He, yeah. He really took the time to, I was a fly on the wall at that point in my career. I barely knew what I was doing. And he really took the time to get to know me and make me feel welcome, which was the strangest thing. <laughs> That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. Larry, last question. What's your theme song? So there's, there's the, the, Kate, uh, the Kate Clark Bean Show, and they're following you around all around the world uh, with all your, your adventures from uh, the horses to the concerts to, you know, Bryce Jordan living on the big place, the new husband. What is the theme song to the show about your life? I'm going to throw it back to the 90s. Patty Griffin, uh, her song, One Big Love. And if you don't know it, you should look it up and listen to it. It's an amazing song. I love Patty, man. That's some good stuff. Very nice. All right. Kate, uh, what, what, any plugs you want to give social media if somebody wants to reach out to you? I'm on LinkedIn as Kate Clark Bean. I'm also on Instagram at wanderwoman5280. And you can find me on Facebook. I'm not that exciting there. I'm not that exciting really anywhere. I just post a bunch of pictures of my horse. <laughs> That's exciting. You can find the Bryce Jordan Center at, at Jordan Center on pretty much any platform. And like I said, we're hiring. So check us out. 
a little inside scoop there for you today. Well, hey, we want to thank you, Kate, and uh, thanks to everybody for listening to Adventures in Venue Land. Remember, you can subscribe and find more episodes wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. We'd love your five-star reviews so you can help others find us. Until the next adventure, I'm Dave Rettelberger. And I'm Paul Hooper. Thanks for listening, everyone. Adventures in Venueland is a side project of the Event and Arena Marketing Conference, a nonprofit organization bringing together people in the field of live entertainment to discuss marketing, publicity, and sales trends. Find out more at eventarenamarketing.com. Audio editing and mixing by Camille Faulkner. Design and digital advertising by Megan Ebeck. Copywriting and publicity by Samantha Marker. Guest booking and brand strategies by Paul Hooper. Guest research by Dave Rettelberger. Marketing strategies by Paul Hooper, Megan Ebeck, and Samantha Marker. Thanks for joining us. Until the next adventure.